Beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to our passage again in, in Romans 11, and I start with an idea that's an interesting one. We all kind of want to know the future. We all have an interest in knowing what's going to happen. Now, none of us do know the future. God has not given us that kind of foresight. He's given us inklings and understandings, and we can project forward, and we can plan, and we can do all those things, but we don't know the future. And the truth of it is, sometimes we don't want and shouldn't want to know the future. We might say very clearly, God knows the future. God knows all things. In fact, God has decreed the future, not only from his knowledge, but his desire and will that things should come to pass. Well, God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, such as good as the truth. That's what God is. We're not that. We're finite. We're creatures. And God has made us finite, which means not infinite, right? There are boundaries to us, physical boundaries, like at the end of my skin, I stop. Right? I don't go beyond that. Uh, my words do, and other things like that. God's made us to have you know, impacts on one another, but we're finite. And we don't know the future. But what is the future, then, of this order of things, this cosmos? What's the future of the church of Jesus Christ? What's the future of Israel after the flesh? And not just what's the future, like what are the goals or what's going to happen, but can we know the future and part of the way of getting there? In other words, can we know God's plan for the future, for the church of Jesus Christ, for the nation of Israel after the flesh and so on? And can we discern a path to get there? that God has for us to, to continue forward in faithfulness. And I think as we come to this passage in Romans chapter 11, we come to just such a passage. Not all passages in the Bible seem to have the same weight. I remember a joke in an animated card, you know, cartoon uh, where there was a challenge between a man and a, a, a pastor or a priest, and the man says a Bible verse, and it happens to be, uh, and Jesus, Jesus went out to Bethany and lodged there. There's a Bible verse that talks about Jesus going out to Bethany where he stayed and lodged there. Well, I assure you there are profound depths to Jesus going out to Bethany and lodging there that we don't know about. But at the same time, it's not quite the same weight of text as we come on to this morning that's telling us what God's plans are for the church, what God's plans are for Israel, what he's doing in human history. It has a bit more weight to it than a detail of Jesus traveling. So we come to a passage that really has a lot for us in thinking about the future of the church and of Israel, not just the future, getting a glimpse of what's going to happen, but sensing a way that we're going to get there, the way God has planned for this to come to pass. We have both of those things in view. The image we have in view to discuss all of this, the future of the church, of Israel, of, uh, and, and the way we're going to get there, is none other than an olive tree. Have any of you ever spent time with an olive tree? Yeah, I don't know. That, I don't know that they grow around here, or that the ones that do grow around here, or probably hotter places, uh, are similar to the ones that grow around the Mediterranean or in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, where we're picking up our our text here. So let's talk about first the olive tree. Just what is the olive tree, and kind of what's the image that Paul's working with here, and then secondly, on being cut out of that olive tree, and finally on being grafted in to that olive tree. So the olive tree is the big picture, and it's a, a metaphor. Okay? And that is to say, it stands for something else. Right? The, the olive tree, as we kind of talk about the parts of it, and the parts that are mentioned really are the, the root and the branches, uh, not the trunk itself, uh, but nonetheless, we'll talk about that in a moment. That stands for something. 
Right? There's an image of the olive tree stands for something. And, of course, from verse 16, as we read, we have the, the issue of the lump and the batch of bread. Uh, and we have the issue of the, the root and the branches. And, and Paul arguing that Israel is a holy nation. God set that nation apart. And all the way back to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for their sake, the nation of Israel is still beloved of God. It's still part of God's redemptive plan. And I mean Israel after the flesh. Because that's what Paul's talking about. Over and over again, he's contrasting the believing unbelievers and, I mean, sorry, that's a weird one, the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews as the body of Christ over against unbelieving Israel. But the whole chapter has been, not just chapter 11, but chapters 9, 10, and 11, have been all about unbelieving Israel and what to make of them and what God's plans are for them and how it all works out according to the very election of God and his purposes. So the metaphor of the tree, the olive tree, is really one of the historical reality of Israel, of God making covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, the nation of Israel, and so on, that that's, that is the tree. That's the root of the whole thing. The branches are the people through the generations, and in the generation that Paul's writing to and, and beyond. But the root is that historic reality of God making covenant with his people, and that that lasts from Abraham all the way to the end of the world. That covenant made with Abraham is still a guiding principle for us, and we see that in the New Covenant as well. The New Covenant is, at that point, nothing more than the flowering and opening up of the old. So the issue here is Israel's historic reality, the covenants that God has made. And I flip, flip back to the beginning of chapter 9. I think you can see what Paul has in mind, specifically, or at least by way of example, when he talks about the, the root. What is this root of which, or from which the branches are growing? Remember Paul weeping here at the beginning of Romans 9 for Israel, for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Anyone have any doubt who he's talking about? You shouldn't. No one should have any doubt who he's talking about because he's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh. Israelites. Okay, so sometimes we get into this passage all the way into chapter 11 and want to pretend like we can't tell what he's talking about. We can tell what he's talking about. He's consistently contrasting the faith of the believers, both Jew and Gentile. Maybe he says, I'm a Jew. Don't forget me over here. God hasn't forgotten his people. There's a remnant of people believing, but there's also a bunch of Gentiles believing. But there's the bulk of Israel that's not believing. That's the hang-up. That's the problem. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to concern this? And Paul weeps about it. He wants them to come to Christ, even to the point where he himself would be accursed. Verse 4, they are Israelites. Okay, this is the root we're talking about. This is the root out of which the branches are growing in history. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. They're God's adopted to people. right? They're his children, just like the church enjoys as well. They, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. All that's built into this root of what it is to be an Israelite. Now, does that mean every Israelite believes in those promises and is saved? No, but they are growing out of that root. They are part of God's covenant people. And if they don't believe, 
particularly as it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah God has promised to send, all the way back to Abraham and before. If they don't believe in him, they are cut off. Jesus Christ himself is the dividing point. He is the rock of stumbling, as Paul says elsewhere here in this epistle. So Romans 9, then, tells us, the beginning here, tells us what that root is. And the most important part of the root is that after the flesh, they are the people to whom or from whom Messiah came. God gave the Savior of the world, not through the Amalekites, not through the Americans, not to offend you, it wasn't American, it wasn't the red, white, and blue that gave us the Savior of the world. It was Israel. It was God through His people, Israel, that gave us the Messiah for the na- for Israel and the nations. We well, see that in verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, and amen. So if we're thinking about the root here in this image, we're not thinking about, like in, in, in John chapter 15, where a similar image is used, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, which isn't an olive tree, it's a vine, and, and uh, you're the branches, and my father is the husbandman. Right, I used to use that word, uh, the vine dresser, the one who's going to work, right, and he's going he's to take off the branches that don't bear fruit, and he's going to prune the ones that do bear fruit so they bear more, and all this sort of thing. That's a similar image of what's going on here, but this is a different one. The root isn't, or the vine isn't Jesus himself. It's this historic reality that God has set up in history through Israel, the giving of the covenants and the promises and so on. And the branches that are in that that believe remain. The branches that were in that that didn't believe were cut off. And those weird olive shoots, the wild ones out there, not the cultivated ones, we'll get to that in a moment, those are believing. And they are themselves even grafted in contrary to nature. So, as a quick description of the olive tree, you can go check out some Google images of olive trees in the Mediterranean if you want. Not a very big tree, not a very tall tree. Uh, oftentimes the trunk of it is twisted and weird, and they take a long time to grow. They take, they take numerous decades to grow and start to produce any fruit and can live up to a thousand years. They live a long, long time. I don't know other trees that have that kind of longevity. I'm sure there are some. I just am utterly ignorant of horticulture and botany and those sorts of things, which is unfortunate because there's plenty of it in the Bible. There's plenty of this sort of thing in the Bible of God conveying truth to us by uh, by metaphors through botany and horticulture. So it has the root, the trunk, and the branches. also has leaves and flowers. And finally, fruit. It grows olives. That is, after all, why we call it an olive tree. There's something about that in the Bible as well, that you can tell a tree by its fruit. Christian, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Well, we're talking about an olive tree because that's the fruit growing on this. Our lives, we can take into consideration in the fruit that we bear as Christians. That fruit, the trees were okay, and they did their thing, but the point of the tree is the fruit, the olives themselves. The olives, of course, were used largely to be pressed and to get the oil out of them, to use that that oil from the olive for eating and and so on, for medicine, uh, for finances. It's it's a major export and and, and a way to make a a living. Uh, There's all kinds of use for this olive oil, and it's an important staple in Israeli or the Israelite society and all around the Mediterranean, but we're talking about Israel specifically. They cultivated these trees, right? Anyone who's, you know, anyone who works on what they work on can understand if your livelihood is tied up into these trees, not only are they cultivated now by 
a husband men or a, uh, someone who is, is equipped, but it's a generational consideration. Right? The children are, uh, of the owners would come up and, and take care of these olive trees because they're producing. That's their family's productivity through the generations. Right? You can think of how important that is for, these, for, the, for those who own them. Also, when they've cultivated these trees, when they've worked them and they've pruned them and they've, they've got them doing what they want that they're producing their, their fruit, the, all, the wild olive branches, the wild olive trees are not their friends. The, those ones that just grow out there wild aren't what we're looking for. They don't produce the fruit we want. They grow weird. But these cultivated ones, of course, are more precious because of the human effort put into them to cultivate them. So we see a little bit then of uh, what Paul's talking about then, is that we were olive branches from a wild tree, not so good, grafted into a cultivated olive tree. Well, the cultivation of the many centuries of God working with his people and speaking to them and giving them the scriptures, that's the cultivated olive tree that those with unbelief were cut out of, and even the Gentiles who believed were brought in. As you think of the olive tree, or in part of the olive tree and olive leaf, what's the first thing that comes to mind in the scriptures? At least for me, I think, the first thing that pops to mind is Noah. The first mention, I remember sitting down with the Seventh-day Adventist, and he mentioned the principle of first mention as a, as a hermeneutical principle. I'd never heard someone say that before, but no, it's no doubt true. That the first time something's brought up in the Bible is kind of definitive. It helps us. It's the beginning of us understanding what that image means, to be sure. Well, Noah, remember, let's go to the dove, uh, the raven. Anyway, and then the dove goes out and the dove comes back a second time. And the second time with a little sprig or a leaf of an olive tree in, you know, in his beak or coming back to Noah. And Noah knows, okay, it's done now. Right? The, 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 this age and this, this little short eon of wrath poured out upon the earth. And the flood is now over. Noah's at peace. So therefore, the olive tree becomes an, uh, an image of peace. Peace with God and peace with men, but also growth. It's, if Noah comes onto a, a new earth right, with a new olive tree and he begins to grow. So there's, there's peace on one hand and growth on the other. And that's something built in, I think, from the beginning to the image of an olive tree or the products of an olive tree. Now, so we have this olive tree, again, the image, this, you know, again, these rooted, kind of funky trunk, and then uh, nice bushy trees that have all this fruit, is an image of God's people. Okay, that's the image that Paul gives us of the people of God, and not just the Christian church from, you know, at some point in Acts forward, like we're dispensationalists, like the church started then or something, um, but way back, connected all the way back and all the way forward to the end as well. And here we are in the middle of it in this peculiar time for Paul where so many of the branches are being cut out because of unbelief and then so many other branches that are from wild olive trees are being grafted in. Right? That's, that, and again, that's the whole issue of the, of the beginning of the New Covenant Church here is what to do with these outsiders, these Gentiles, and why aren't the Jews coming to their own Messiah? Well, indeed, because they are cut off. So what does it mean to be cut off? We read in the text here that some branches were cut off because of unbelief or lopped off. Uh, some commentators were saying, I like that word, lopped off. Uh, they were lopped off and because of unbelief. It wasn't because they were believing but struggling and sinning giving over. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't say they didn't repent enough. They were cut off because they didn't repent enough. They didn't turn from their sin enough. It doesn't say that. Christian, what does it say? They were cut off because of their unbelief. But you stand by faith 
So don't be haughty. Fear, Christian. That's what Paul comes to. It's, they were cut off because of their unbelief. Those, those Jews who were cut off are cut out of historic, the, the, you know, taken, taken away from the root and the sap and the fatness of the plant because of their unbelief. And the Gentiles, these wild olive branches, are cut off, walked off, and grafted on through faith. Okay? So what's the issue? What's the primary issue Paul has in mind here? Well, it's the primary issue he has had in mind the whole letter. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both for justification in all those the earlier chapters, but also here just in living in the covenant. Just being faithful to God, just trusting Him, taking Him at His word. And of course, as we trust God, so our lives are conformed by that trust. In other words, faith comes first and living follows. Faith comes first and living follows. The scripture doesn't say here, that they were cut off because of their bad living. Though you can make an argument that there's plenty of bad living and idolatry that way. It's because of their unbelief. And out of our hearts come the issues of life. So what does being cut off look like then? So if we got this situation where Jesus came to his people, to this long-standing work of God's people, this, long, this, this centuries, centuries-old olive tree, and he begins to tend it or minister to it, and there's much unbelief, even to the very point of putting Jesus to death. That was an act of unbelief, to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's all part of God's plan. And God raised him from the dead. And God pulled him into heaven to seat at his right hand. And he poured out his spirit, and before Jesus left, he said, All the wrath from all the wickedness and unbelief of all the ages coming upon this generation. This generation is going to be cut off. And we see that preeminently in AD 70, the war from 66 to 70, where not only is the temple destroyed, stone for stone, but the city is. And the Jews are massacred. They're cut off. And there's a judgment in that generation for them. But it's not just that generation. That's true, and that's, that's what happened. And I'll just kind of parrot R.C. Sproul's, just listen to one of his sermons, saying that Matthew 24 and uh, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus discusses the, the fall of Jerusalem and, the, and the, the destruction of the temple, is the top proof of Jesus as a prophet. The top one. Or, it's the top proof that Christianity's bunk. It goes one of those two ways. And he says, from his standpoint, going through his kind of, you know, modernist, liberal, you know, in, 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 the, in the seminary and in the academy, as he's working on his higher degrees, he says, I couldn't go a day Without having Matthew 24, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. He couldn't have that not thrown in his face as a believing Christian. Because all the, all the scholars are like, see, Jesus was wrong. He didn't come back in that generation, did he? And evangelicals say, yep, no, he didn't. Yeah, but he did. But he did. He came in vengeance upon his people, like he promised, and so on. That's the coming of Jesus Christ in that generation, just like he said. A destruction of the temple, a destruction of Jerusalem, a scattering of, of the Jews under judgment, just like he said. And is the top proof of Jesus as a prophet of God, speaking the truth and telling what's going to happen. For telling. So that's what went on, at least in that generation. And an example of that is, we call that, that hill that's opposite, at least on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, you kind of think about a map or flip to the back of your Bible, there are many maps and probably one of Jerusalem uh, the, the hill on the east side, there's a valley and then the hill is the hill of the, the Mount of Olives why was it called that? 
because it was covered with olive trees. It was a huge grove of olive trees that was super important for the city and the longevity of the city and, and so on. In that siege that ended in AD 70, at least the siege of Jerusalem did, it kept going a few years after that. In that siege, the Roman armies came and besieged the city of Jerusalem. Guess what they did with all those olive trees? Cut every one of them down to burn for their fire. They're out there, it's cold, burn these trees. So you have the hundreds and hundreds of years of, of that wonderful growth outside the city simply cut down. No longer, still no longer, because the Roman armies of that generation whereof Jesus spoke. So not only were they destroyed from Jerusalem, taken out, but the Jews were generally despised throughout the Roman Empire anyway. Like, Romans didn't really like the Jews. They were weird, fuzzy people that were from another side of the world and had this weird religion, and that's fine. They didn't like them. So even before the Jewish wars of 66 to 70, the Jews were kind of a despised people group beyond, in the Roman Empire even more. Even more with the, the Jewish wars and so on. This is partially what it looks like to be cut off. They're out of their land. They're away from their temple. They have none of the things that have been the practice of their Judaism in Jerusalem. It's all gone. Judaism, according to the scriptures anyway, the old covenant as it's laid out in the scriptures, has not functioned at all since AD 70, since the destruction of that temple. It's a definitive destruction. Not only are Jews kind of generally have been, at the time and since, been generally despised, uh, by their Gentile compatriots in the Roman Empire and around the world, but are often the boogeyman, the scapegoat, an object of ire by Christians through the Christian ages as well. What does it look like being cut off into the modern world? What, just kind of trying to think through what it is to be a Jew who's not a Christian, who has rejected Messiah. Well, in the first place, there's no more Judaism. The ancestral religion that was practiced can no longer be practiced. It must be modified, and Jews have done plenty of modifications and practiced their religious concerns uh, apart from what the Scriptures say. But, of course, that's not faithful Judaism. We have to do what the Scriptures say, just like Christians would talk about the New Covenant as well. What about the modern world? Well, the Jews don't compose a tremendous percentage of the population anywhere, really. Um, Israel, sure, since 1946 started growing, really. Um, but around the world, they're a fairly small percentage of people groups. And I don't even know the answer. How many um, Nobel Prizes have been won in the 20th century by Jews? Vastly outranking the, the, the percentage of people they are. Right? In other words, there's an enormous gifting that we see among the Jews. God's given them lots of gifts. And sometimes those gifts are used well for the benefit of humanity. But we shouldn't be shocked to find that sometimes they're not. Sometimes those same powerful gifts are used to the destruction of humanity. And so you can look at Jews and say, look, they're behind all of these diabolical things that are terrible for humanity. True. You can expect that. But they're also behind all kinds of things that are great for humanity. There are gifted, blessed people. And those blessings go different directions. And when it goes bad... It really goes bad. That's something we should expect to notice here all through history, but in the modern world. Maybe Jews are included more than they used to be through the Middle Ages and antiquity. Maybe not. Maybe they're still ghettoized and doing their own thing, which is pretty much kind of how it goes. Though there maybe is a little more cosmopolitan-ness in the modern world. Um, and then we run into the 20th century, the final solution. Right? And that's the urbane German, you know, cosmopolitan world saying, oh, I got an idea. Let's round up all the Jews and kill them. That's a good idea, right? 
So this is what the Jews faced in the 20th century. And then out of that comes a new Jewish homeland, finally. After nearly 2,000 years, you know, the United Nations carves out space from other people's living areas and say the Jews can live here because this is their ancestral home. Not because it's been their home for centuries at all. Nobody, you know, the, the Jews that have been in, in Jerusalem are a pretty minuscule number of people uh, until, until World War II kind of ends and Jews start going, we got nowhere to go and we're hated around the world. We're going to have our own place. And Anyway, in 1948, they have their own place. Uh, much to the chagrin of those who had that place before them and the surrounding countries that hate the Jews as well. So that's what it is to be cut off in the modern world. Okay, they've been their own people. They've, they've been under themselves. They've been opposed by virtually every people group they've been in contact with. They're a cut off people. But it's not just they're despised by men. So are Christians. We're despised by the world. So that's not anything particular. The problem is they're apart from the promises of God. They're apart from this life-giving, sap-giving, covenantal, historical reality of faith in Christ, that son of Abraham, that son of Moses. They've cut themselves off from all that goodness and sap and turned to oppose it, turned in opposition to the very Messiah sent to them. The scriptures, therefore, call those sorts of synagogues, synagogues not of God, but of Satan. Go read Revelation 2 and 3. If, there, if, if these are gathered together, Jews who are opposed to Christianity, opposed to Christ, they are not God's synagogues. They are Satan's synagogues. Make no mistake. And so that's what we have, as far as Jewish, you know, there's, a, there's your thumbnail, of Jewish history from AD 70 on, or before. That they've rejected their Messiah. Messiah says the wrath is coming on this generation. It did. They were destroyed. Their place of worship was destroyed, and it's always been destroyed since. And they've been vagabonds wandering the world since that time until 48. And, of course, that was a very important thing for a lot of Bible, you know, Bible believers saying, oh, this is the prophetic time clock ticking. Right here in Romans 11, they're thinking about that, too. So that's something for another time. So do remember, as we talk about this, that our salvation comes from the Jews. Jesus and all the apostles were Jews. This root, this, this olive tree is Jewish. It's not a Gentile olive tree. It's a Jewish olive tree. So, thank a Jew. Right? You have some Jewish friends, read me in, thank them. Say, hey, man, we're, we really appreciate what you've done for us. You've given us the scriptures. You kept these, and from you has come Messiah. This is their inheritance. The, the, the joys and glories of Christ that we enjoy are their inheritance that they're cut off from because of their unbelief. But we've been grafted into through faith. So that's a, an apologetic or even an evangelistic notion of trying to say, hey, we enjoy this blessing, but it's not really our blessing. We've been brought into it in Christ Jesus. So thank a Jew and make that something that as you pray and witness and love them, that maybe they'd be provoked to jealousy, just like Paul says here. That they might see that we're enjoying their, their benefits and their inheritance, and they might be provoked to jealousy. And again, it's not just because, like, they may look at our lifestyle or they may look at our families and say, oh, they got their family just put together. Wife looks really good, husband's strapping, kids are cute and doing cute kid things. I want to be like that. That's kind of not it. We'd like to think it's that way and present ourselves that way, but that's not it. What is it? That they would see Jesus Christ in you and in your family. Not that they'd see how well you're put together, but that you rest in Jesus Christ. That you love him and you have him to offer. Not how good you are, but how great the Savior is. But they're cut off from that. And we want to provoke them to jealousy that they, by God's grace, might come 
and receive it. And when they do, won't it be like life from the dead, as Paul anticipates. So that's on being cut out, or on being cut out, but on being grafted in. That's kind of our joy as Gentiles to be grafted into this thing. We uncultivated branches, the nasty ones, the irritating ones, the ones you don't want in your cultivated olive tree, those are the ones that God has brought in. Not particularly, well, it's not a good way of talking about Gentile believers that we're the uncouth, nasty, uncultured, wild olive branches. That's not particularly becoming of us. That's okay, more on that later. We were outsiders. We Gentiles, now we can blast back a couple thousand years and pretend we're Gentiles um, then, but we're just as Gentiley now. Right? The, the, the whole Gentile thing not being based upon this olive tree and the promises and the covenants and all the work God has built into Israel. America's not that. We're downstream from that. We've benefited from it. Right? And, and the nations of the world were still the nations of the world. But God has brought us near into something that was already functioning before us. When the Gentiles arrived, it didn't change the nature of what's going on. The the, the olive tree is still the olive tree. It's just wild branches have been grafted in. And it wasn't that we like brought our Gentiliness with us. It's that we need to learn from this root. We need to learn from the covenants God has made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and so on and David. We need the scriptures. We need the worship of God. We get all that from Israel. All that's already intact and moving when the Gentiles are brought in. Okay, that's important. So the truth is that the Christian church is a Jewish church. The roots of it are Jewish. Everything about this, this reality is Jewish. Now, Jesus is the desire of the nations. And God's moved the nations in ways where they can anticipate and look forward to the Messiah. No question about that. But the mainstay, the very olive tree itself, is the covenants that God made with his people. And that holiness of pulling them out of the world and instructing them and teaching them all of that covenantal reality is already intact and running when the Gentiles are being grafted in. Right? So we're grafted into something already going, already there. And this, again, is like I mentioned last week, is, part of the, is the very basis, I think, at least from a reform standpoint, of arguing for infant baptism. Is that that covenantal functioning always through the generations, always included the children. But then we come to the new covenant and somehow it doesn't. You know, well, that does. It includes the children. I tried to, to show that two, two weeks ago. So anyway, we get into an already existing olive tree. And the sap-giving root is what we need. That's what we get access to as God takes us out of the wild olive tree and grafts us into the olive tree that is this Jewish Israel reality. The covenants and promises, the scripture, the worship, all of those glorious things in Christ Jesus himself. Now... Contrary to our assumptions and expectations, Israelites after the flesh and their traditions will fit back in splendidly. We tend to think like, oh, well, Israel is hardened and they're out there, they're never going to believe. Well, first of all, God says they will. There's a plan for them to believe and come back in. And then he says at the end of this passage, how much more natural is it for them to come back in than for you wild olive shoots to be grafted in here? We seem to think this is our wild olive tree. We know all about it. Those Jews are the outsiders. Paul says just the opposite. You Gentiles are the outsiders. By God's grace, he's brought you in in Christ Jesus. You who are far off from the covenants of promise and the commonwealth of Israel, God has brought near in Jesus Christ. And then he says, how much more then will the natural branches become right back on if they don't persist 
in their unbelief. Now, what, think, just think for a moment what, what happens when something like that happens. When especially Jews, not just the kind of worldly, um, you know, like Reformed Jews that we think about now, they're basically like, you know, American Protestants that wear occasionally, you know, wear something on their head that makes them look Jewish. Right? But going back to more faithful Jewish, you know, the textually oriented, biblically oriented, even though they don't see the Christ, what happens when someone like that comes and sees the Christ of God? They bring all of those riches in with them. All of the texts of Scripture are the traditions, and of course all that has to be sorted out and, and, and figured out, but they bring the text and the historical riches, a Christocentric, right, of seeing Messiah in all of Scripture, uh, the Old Testament, all connected up with the glories of Christ. That's high-octane Christianity. When it understands and connects up the whole Bible, that's what Judaism would offer as it comes in. So we can look forward at that, where Paul says, hey, it's been, it's been, it's been great for the Gentiles, the hardening of, of Israel, how much more when they come in? It'll be like life from the dead, and I'm just trying to point out particular parts of this life from the dead we can look forward to. The Gentile nations, along with the Jews, all together, for King Jesus. How about that for a vision? Just try it on. Uh, it may be not quite the doom and gloom you're expecting, and the church you know, getting raptured out of here just before she tanks. But how about all the Gentile nations, led by the Jews, together with their scripture, all as one people, not different tiers of people. The Jewish Christians are better than the non. None of that. We're all one in Christ Jesus. But life from the dead, Christian. Can you imagine all the nations lifting up the name of Christ, saying, Christ is our God? His word is our word and our law. Stranger things have happened. Rome became Christian. Anyway, just think about what God's plans are, what he's laying out here as far as what we can anticipate, the riches of his grace and redemption, not just among the Gentiles as they come and bring the riches of the nations and, and all that, and but of Israel herself, who is currently hardened and cut off because of their unbelief. But God can graft them back in again. And there's great hope when he does. So here, thinking about the future. That's kind of where we're going. What's the future of Israel? Is she just hardened and gone for good? Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. That's not the way it is. There is a remnant now, he says. And my ministry as as a minister to the Gentiles partially provokes the Jews that will come. But we want the Jews to come. And we recognize that it will be a tremendous blessing as they do come, not as Israel herself, but in the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Humbling themselves and looking to Him, their Messiah, for salvation, for grace, for forgiveness of sins, and for the Holy Spirit to live and be faithful and serve our God here and now. Well, this olive tree is still growing. We'd like to see the future of it and figure out how this is going to go. It's a bit hazy. But we can recognize that God is building his church. Christ said, I will build my church. And even the greatest enemy won't stand against me doing it. The very gates of hell. The olive tree is still growing. It's still going. We Gentiles are grafted in. From the outside, we've been brought near in Christ Jesus. And we partake of the sap and the fatness of the root. And there'll be more on this. I'm not done with this text. Um, we'll, we'll consider some of the warnings in it, Lord willing, next week. But let me ask you this as we close. Do Paul's, anticipa- do Paul's anticipations in this text, as you read them, do they seem negative? Do they seem like, yeah, this is going to go badly for the church? Or do they seem like he anticipates something positive? Read the text and tell me. And the answer is he anticipates something very positive. He's hinting at it over and over again in this text. It's good right now with, with the, the hardness of Israel. How much more? 
How much more when they believe, when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ and become Christians, Jewish Christians, just like Paul was. So therefore we have great hope in the power of Jesus Christ, not only to subdue the nations to himself, which is what he's doing right now, now is the time of the Gentiles, more in the next week, but the nations are coming. Does it amaze you what Christ has done through the generations in calling the Gentiles all around the world to himself? in these 20 centuries since his ascension? It should. It should amaze you what Christianity has done. Of course, it's all a mixed bag and we're sinners and everything else. And there's a lot of work to be done. But that doesn't mean we can't step back and look at the work Christ has done and say, wow, the Christian church is something amazing on earth. And it certainly is. Nothing like it on the face of the earth, the Christian church. Should we be hopeful and press forward towards victory? You bet. And knowing that his victory comes to us. Christ gives us the kingdom. The victory is in Christ Jesus himself. So we have great hope in the power of Jesus Christ. So to subdue the nations to himself. And even to subdue the nation of Israel back to himself. Even if they've been cut off, they can be grafted back in again. Jesus Christ has the power to subdue us to him. To subdue you. Your heart. Your rebellious heart. My rebellious heart. He knows how to subdue that. To bring us to heal. And to lead us in the way everlasting. And not just each of us individually, that. But our families. Our children that we struggle over. Our loved ones that we we pray for. And we shouldn't despair. Because Christ has the power to subdue them. When and how he wants. So let's pray in hope. Let's live in hope. Let's live forward toward that hope. And not in fear. Christ can subdue each of us, our families, the very church he has purchased unto himself. And he'll be glorified, not only in the salvation of all the people he saves, innumerable company, but also in the death and in the punishment of the wicked. God is glorified in all of it. So here's the word today. Flee the wrath to come. Flee unto the one who has shown us, who has brought us Gentiles nasty, weird, wild olive branches and brought us in in faith. Let's trust Him. Let's rest in Him and fear, knowing that He has the power to destroy us and the power to save us. May God save us, all who hear the word. May God give us ears to hear. Amen.